start a new sermon series today and to introduce it in the spirit of an endless political season. Election season has now become a decade-long process that will not end in your lifetime. You think that the coming of an election in November will make the running for election end? It will not. They will start campaigning the next day. During these times, you have clever little forums where people are asked questions, perhaps, from a, a moderator that will then be excoriated the next day as a foolish buffoon, or, man, I'm getting nothing today, or town hall meetings where questions will be asked from the audience and then the candidate will have an opportunity to answer the question that they wish to answer and not the one that was asked. Same can happen in a debate. And so that's what I'm going to do today. Today's sermon is going to be in the form of a question and answer from uh, pretend questions that you have submitted to me without realizing it. So, uh, Pastor Eric, what are you... First question. Pastor Eric, what are you going to preach about this fall? Here's my answer. Uh, judges. Next question. No, seriously. Answer. Judges. Next question. Um, what's that? Is that in the Bible? It's a great question, Caroline. Just kidding. Just made that up. There actually is a Caroline here. I, I was trying to think of a name that wasn't here. There is one. Sorry, I wasn't talking about you. But now at least everyone knows where you're sitting. <laughs> Judges is a book in the Bible. And I'm interested in us in being a progressive church. Not really. But in the same way that Wendell Berry thought that when he wrote his magazine article for Harper's many years ago called Why I Will Not Buy a Computer, he said, if having a computer is the newest idea then not having one is an even newer one. And it seems to me that we're going to be on the cutting edge of theological breakthrough by preaching a book that none of you has ever heard any human speak of, preach, or even identify. Has anybody in this room ever heard a sermon series on the book of Judges? Okay, two. Yes, y'all went to the RP church? Because the people in the earlier... No, 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 no. Whoa, no. No, sorry. Nope. That's not what I said. What I meant was there were three people at the other service. who All of you had come from the same church, which means at that church, it wasn't anything about the church. That's One church did this faithfully. That's all I was saying. And you all went to it at one point in your lives. That's the only thing I'm saying about our sister church. But this, this book is in the Bible, which means, according to the Bible, it's useful because it's been breathed out from the mouth of God for teaching men and women and children how to be righteous, how to be equipped to do good on the earth. The Apostle Paul says, because it's in the Bible, that everything that was written in the past was written so that we might have encouragement. And so that we might have endurance so that we don't wear out. 
In another place, he says, everything that was written in the scriptures was written down as examples for us upon whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. 1 Corinthians 10, if you're taking notes, which no one is. So that we would be kept from putting our hearts or setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Like sexual immorality. Like grumbling. Grumbling. That's one of the evil things that the Bible doesn't want us to do. You're like, well, but isn't that what you learn to do before you even learn how to talk? Well, yes, but the Bible hates it because it's a corrosive thing on your inside. So partly we're doing this because it's in the Bible. And we believe in the Bible, and none of us has ever heard a sermon on it. I had to look it up in the, in the table of contents how to find it. That was the next question. So that reminds me, where is this in the Bible? Great question. John, in the Bible, the first five books are called the Pentateuch, or the five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Literate biblical fellows and fellows. After that, so in, this, in, the, in the book of Deuteronomy and in, in, in the five books of Moses, you have this situation where God calls out a people Right? He forms a people, makes promises. They get huge in number, something in the water. They are led out from Egypt out of their captivity from the Egyptians. They are wandering around, and they have a leader. What's that leader's name? Charlton Heston? No. What's the leader's name? Moses. Moses leads them out into the desert for a lot of years on the way to the promised land because, like my daddy used to say, you can take the boy out the country, but you can't take the country out the boy. Well, you can take the people out of Egypt, but it's hard to get Egypt out of the people. And so God wanders them around in meandering fashion in the desert to wean them off themselves, to learn how to trust him. Moses was this exemplary leader, such as there's never been in the Old Testament. No prophet ever like him who met face-to-face with God, a friend of God. And then after Moses gets them up to the edge of the promised land, the people of God, they finally make it. They're in the plains of Moab. They're about to cross over the, what river is that? Jordan, right. They're about to cross over the Jordan River. He doesn't get to go. He's going to die. He gets to look it over, do a look over. Who's the next guy after him? Joshua, man, you guys have been reading your Bible reading plan? No, Sunday school as kids. Joshua, so they had the good fortune of having two exceptional leaders back to back. Joshua was sanctioned by Moses. His hands laid on him. The spirit of God filled him so that he, which is what God always wants for his people, is leading the people in keeping Torah, keeping the law, keeping covenant with God. Walking in his ways. And so things go swimmingly as he leads them into Canaan. You know the song. Joshua won the battle at Jericho. Jericho. You know, okay, you're, you're following, right? This is more background than we usually do, but you got we're, we're trying to learn you the Bible here. I'm about to stop on this part. Joshua, as people do, he dies, 110, a lot of kale, made it, 
But there's a problem, and we hear about it at the beginning of Judges. The beginning of Judges, you have these, these couple of chapters that are kind of introductory. So I'm not going to go, I can't go through all of it. But these first couple of chapters are introductory. They're kind of a prologue. And it starts with an obituary of Joshua. He was awesome. He was a sterling God follower, an amazing leader, sanctioned by God, and led the people to do what they ought to do. But then he died, and there was, as my friend Scott Jones has said, your elder and professor, a vacuum of leadership. Who is going to lead God's people? And so this is the little shaky bridge, like at Rock City, the little bridge between the leadership of Joshua and the implementation of the monarchy. What's monarchy another word for? King. Right? So Samuel starts and they get a king after, jo- after judges. But so you got this intervening period where there's no good leadership. There's nobody who's going to be leading the people in covenant with God. Who can unite all the tribes of Israel? That's the question. That's the question this book aims to answer in the show. Next question. Why are you doing this format again? Question and answer like this? Great question. Bob? Because I think it's kind of like giving our dog her medicine. Our dog has allergies, which is awesome. What dog has allergies? She's an outside dog. She's tougher than you are, but she itches. And she got hit by a car recently. So she's taking a couple of kinds of medicine. She's still tougher than you are. But she does not like to take these medicines unless you wrap it in fake cheese. Which I guess is what you call, like, American slices of cheese. Isn't that fake cheese? Store-bought, store brand. So you wad it up. You put the Benadryl in there for her allergies and the whatever antibiotic in there. You give it, and she just, like, wants your hand. She loves cheese, and who can blame her? Even if it's fake. And you know what? As she eats the cheese, which is so very tasty, she doesn't even realize she's getting something. That's going to make her life better. She's getting something that's going to make her not itch so bad. And not have infections inside. I'm hoping my genius comic self through this format. To give you some medicine that will help you not itch so bad. To heal diseases inside. And you won't even know it. Next question. So. What's, what's this weird book of Judges about? Laura, that's a great, great question. One thing it's about is it's about the incurable infidelity of God's people. Never seems to get any better. The book ends, which we'll see later, with this sad line, with this to be continued line. In those days, there was no king. Each man did what was right in his own eyes. In this prologue that has just been read by Brittany, we see that they have failed to obey God by driving out the Canaanites, 
and they have forsook. They have forsaken. They forsook or have forsaken, to use the perfect tense, God and given themselves to others. They've been married adulteresses. They're married to God and they're offering themselves to other gods and God hates this. So this book really is a report. It starts to show you what happens when everybody does what's right in their own eyes. When there's no king. When you preference your own perceptions, what you can see with your eyes, what you feel in your own heart, what seems most expedient to you, when you preference those things over and against what God has explicitly said. Israel had a deteriorating condition, a degenerative muscular disease, heart disease. This book is about a downward spiral as each person does what's right in their eyes, as each person abandons God. And in that way, it's a lot about our lives. Moral chaos ensues when everybody does what they want. So, next question. Is that it? Is that all it's about? (laughs) Well, Nigel, it's not all it's about, but we're going to talk about it more as we go on, so I don't want to say everything there is. But one other thing that it's about is what could be called by one commentator, and it's a good word to have if you ever want to just show boat. It's about the dangers of canonization. Canonization. That's when the values of the world around you start to leach into your own mind and body. This is one of the reasons God's so adamant. you got to get rid of the Canaanites when you go into the land, which is your life, which is the sanctuary where I'm going to set up my kingdom, where evil will not be allowed. You cannot have any other rival gods in this land. They must be eradicated. Because if they stay, if you permit them to stay, they're going to leach into the water system. You're going to drink it, and you're going to start thinking like they are. You're going to start wanting what they want, you're going to start worshiping as they worship, you're going to run away from me, which means you're going to run headlong into your own demise. See, canonization happens to us all the time. You can imagine, imagine if you had some, some young 20-somethings here in our congregation who were covenant students, formerly, now they're working, uh, of course, for a software company, and they're living together in a house and they are, they're such conscientious young men. They have a great devotion to Jesus. They're doing their work as unto the Lord. Their only defect is in housekeeping. They are, well, it's, it's sort of a monastic vow they've taken. They're not going to clean anything in their house. And so you have been invited to their house for supper. You go to their house, and as you walk in, you immediately start to gag. You feel your bronchial tubes closing up on you. You, you have a headache. You're instantly nauseous, and you say, without meaning to be impolite, what is that smell? And you go, and you do all that kind of stuff. And they're sitting there playing video games, and they say, you got that? They look at you, and they're like, what smell? Smells good. And you realize in that moment that they've been canonized by their own stink. 
because what's happened is they've lived for so long in certain conditions that their olfactory senses, which is their sniffer, it's done broke on them. And now they can't smell what's all around them. It takes a new set of noses to smell it. Same thing happens. You've been around cigarette smoke, and you know, and the, you don't know when you're there, and you get away, and you realize, like, I'm going to be forever tarnished by the smell of the smoke that's embedded in the, the fabric, the fibers of my clothing, and it's gotten into the molecules in my skin. I'll never get free of this. You can't wash cigarette smoke off of you. It's stuck with you forever. It's like a bad rash. God's people are always in danger of having the values, the wants, the guiding principles, the view of reality that's around them leach into their bloodstream, and they start being led by their own noses, but their noses don't work no more. They don't realize that they stink. That's what this book is about, part of, part of it. It's about what happens when you get canonized, and there's always a danger for us in that. So we're going to try to figure out how can we let these words be a useful instruction to us to wake us up to the, to the reality of the world that we're in so that, so that we don't have the world's values just leeching in us and we're not led along by our own noses. We're led along instead by our king. Uh, good one, Eric. Okay, next question. Uh, why... I noticed when Brittany was reading, these questions are coming up on electronically. I noticed when Brittany was reading that it said a new generation of people came who grew up in Israel who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And then, because that was the case, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals, the Canaanite gods, the Philistine gods. Um, my question, I guess, Eric, is why didn't they just teach their kids to know the Lord and what he had done so that a generation wouldn't grow up like that? Well, Marge, that is... We have Simpsons characters involved in this. That is a very good question. The reason they didn't know the Lord or what he had done for Israel is because or why they didn't teach their kids is because it was hard to teach them. Because they, because of Twitter. Uh, and, and gymnastics practice. And then there were AP classes and then they had to go to the mountain house on the weekends. And UT played at Bristol last night with 150,000 people. And they had to accumulate points on Pokemon. And they had to get to a violin lesson. And they had to work a lot, and there were so many new shows on Netflix. That's not in the text. But it's difficult in every age to have a succession of faith, to transmit your personal connection to Jesus, our personal corporate connection to Jesus and our commitment to him to pass it down. That's what happened here. There was a failure of covenantal succession. There was a failure to transmit. 
every parent is transmitting values all the time. The question is, are we transmitting the words and ways of our Savior? Are we impressing those on our young, or are we teaching them more about how to find a good bargain and how to have a secure retirement and how to make people think you're better than you are? One of the things we'll see in this book is that we have a responsibility and a trust that can't even happen if we don't know the word. How could I teach my kids something that isn't real to me? How do I expect that my kids are ever going to be people who actively pray to Christ if I don't? How are they going to know the scriptures if I have no idea about the scriptures? How are they going to see how to disadvantage themselves for the advantage of others if they don't see their parents disadvantaging themselves for the advantage of others? Or you guys. How are they going to see how you stay faithful in a marriage even when it's hard if they don't see that happening in their parents? How are they going to know what's true if they see their parents merely doing what's right in their own eyes and disregarding the Lord? Okay, those are, those are really phenomenal descriptions, Pastor Eric. Well done. Um, but can I just ask you one more time, why, why, why are you doing this? Judges, I mean, okay, Lionel. This, in my mind, is a, for an entertainment age, this is Quentin Tarantino meets the ancient Near East. In the first chapter of Judges, you've got a king being attacked and his thumbs and his big toes being cut off. That's like Joe Pesci stuff. You're going to see disembowelings. You're going to see people throwing boulders off of towers and smashing people's heads. You're going to see tent pegs going through temples. This is rated R. Romance. Long hair. Fabio. But really, it's, it's really neat stories. These are hero stories. But none of the heroes are quite good enough. None of them have quite what it takes. And at the end of the day, you're stuck with people who are taking the route of expediency, what seems good at the moment. And they're replacing that for long-term fidelity to God. And so that's a dangerous thing. Okay, so you aren't doing this because you hate us? That's the next question. No, don't be silly. Rosalind? That's not like the answer to that one. Okay, but this is the last question. What? But it's so violent. Why? It's so violent. Ethnic cleansing, it looks like, holy wars. Clearly, this isn't part of our history because Jesus said you're supposed to turn the other cheek and love your neighbor as yourself, and he who does, lives on the sword dies on the sword. This is weird stuff. We all very well know, this is a very long question, we all very well know that in the Old Testament, God had not been taking his meds. In the New Testament, he's on Prozac, and so he's all chillaxed. He's mellowed. It's all about love, man. He didn't know nothing about love in the Old Testament. He said, kill them all. 
Okay, is there a question in there? Jimmy? Don't, don't get smart, says Jimmy. Okay. It's a real question. It's a very troubling question. I'm going to take a stab at answering it, and we'll come back to it. The Bible wants to maintain that evil, evil is not a transformable thing. It's an irremediable thing. It's a thing that must be extracted. It must be stamped out. It must be violently destroyed. We have evidence of evil in the world. It happens today, 15 years ago today, on September 11th. And I can remember the sermon I preached right after that was a sermon on evil. Not only about evil, but about evil. And the illustration I use, which still holds today, is this. When Kathy and I were living in Orlando in seminary, we had a condominium. As you walked in the condominium in the foyer, there was a table there. And on that table, before we had gone out of town, we left a set of chocolate lips. Why, you asked, did you have a set of chocolate lips? Well, that's none of your business. We had chocolate lips because my wife was an elementary school teacher, and children at Valentine's had given her, for some reason, a gift of chocolate lips. They were in cellophane. They were in a wrapper, in a box, in one of those things that you have to have like a carving, you know, a Japanese carving knife to open up, and you're going to lacerate your hand to get it open because they don't want you to open it. We went home to Chattanooga or something, and we came back from out of town, and we got there, and I was a little disheartened and somewhat dismayed to notice that these chocolate lips were no longer on the table, but they had been opened. Is there a chocolate lip robber in the premises? The chocolate was... Around our, our condo went in a circular fashion. Around through the dining room to the kitchen, there were cellophane and aluminum foil or aluminum foil for you Brits. And there was chocolate leading back behind our dishwasher. I put a light there and noticed that happily, some sort of badger, I guess, uh, ate a hole in our drywall. It wasn't a badger. It was a swamp rat from Princess Bride. This was very dismaying to me. That night, as I lay there, not sleeping, imagining paratroopers of swamp rats coming, chewing through the ceiling, landing on our faces, I got up, I walked into the kitchen, I pulled out a flashlight, I looked into the, behind the dishwasher, and there in the drywall hole, was the swamp rat. He was He was eating the chocolate. And he said to me, "What are you going to do about it?" I don't think I was hallucinating. But he had this look that was infuriating and terrifying at the same time. Like, "I'm here. I live here. I own the place and I sure own this chocolate." And that's all funny, and we, then we moved. <laughs> we didn't move, but it, it was tempting. But you know what the issue was, is that this, this rat had always existed in the walls, but just one day he broke through. This massive, nasty creature that nobody likes was behind the curtain of visibility. We just couldn't see it. 
And then one day it popped out and freaked us out. And I made the argument then, and I make it now, that evil is in the walls of the world. Modern people don't think it exists, but it does exist. The Bible recognizes it exists. There's an evil one. There are forces of darkness who mean to destroy human life. God means to protect and preserve and promote human life. And there are rats in the walls of the world, and they sometimes pop out. And God is about the business of destroying them. There is no place for swamp rats on his new earth. Well, there might be, but they have a different, you know, they, they give kids rides across lakes and sing sweet songs. But when you see God telling people, and this is going way too long, when you see God telling people in the Old Testament explicitly, not telling America, not telling other nations at other times, telling the Israelites explicitly, get rid of the Canaanites in this instance here, because this is where the holy God is going to reside, and evil cannot reside with the holy God. It must be eradicated. My people will dwell. If they're going to be a light to the nation, they can't become like all the other nations. We believe that Jesus Christ will one day bring judgment on the world. The Bible always says this judgment is good if you're on his side. Because his judgment means he's going to eradicate evil. Nobody that you love is going to have any violence perpetrated against them. You're not going to be afflicted with condemning voices in your head. There will not be any mental illnesses and no cancer will take someone beloved to you. There will not be any unemployment or rape or brutality or murder. These things have no place because they are clear counter to God's good creation. He will one day judge and destroy all evil and all his enemies. That's the Christian view. We believe that. And we also believe it's his prerogative sometimes in human history to speed up the judgment. See, people get all uptight about this, but they ought to be uptight about the fact that God has said, he's forecasted and telecasted and telegraphed Here's my intention. I'm going to judge the world. If you would like passage into the world with no sorrows, where delight alone is allowed, lay down your arms and receive mercy from the judge. All you have to do is not resist him. But if you refuse your own mercy, you will receive judgment. Canaan got it early. Many of God's enemies will get it later. This isn't my hope. This isn't my wish. This is what the scriptures teach. And so if you want to understand what God is up to, think about what would happen if you walked into a dark room, as one of our professors said, and you've, you've never been there before, and you flicked on a light switch for five seconds. And you looked around and you saw what it was like and then the light went out again. In the book of Judges, we see God bringing judgment for five seconds in world history. So you could see this is what's coming for the enemies of God. The light goes out again. It's a preview. But it's a preview 
that is never, ever, 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 ever meant because he hopes to carry it out. Just like I say sometimes, and you've heard me a lot, say to my children, if you don't come down for supper, I'm going to throw you over the house. You know, comic punishments are kind of fun to think about. I couldn't literally throw them over the house. I could probably throw them into the house, but not over. Taylor's getting big. But I never offer a threat that I hope that I will carry out. Because what I want them to do is come eat with me. I want to be with them. I don't want them to disobey. I don't want them to, to ruin themselves and forego what is good and forsake the invitation to come. I want them to receive it. So does your Savior. So he doesn't want you to live by what's right in your own eyes. He wants you to heed the invitation of your good king who says, come to me that you may live. Those are great questions, everyone. Amen.